0: Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning.
1: Quick bit of follow-up from last episode, between when that episode was recorded and now, I attended a conference here in the capital called Canucks, and one of the presenters at Canucks was Kevin DeVy, who runs a, a firm locally here in Ottawa, a design shop. And he was one of the principal designers on a piece of technology for automated manufacturing made by another local company here in Ottawa known as Raven Telemetry. And they make or or specialize in a suite of products that essentially guard against downtime on automated machines. So in a manufacturing environment, it is, is keeping tabs on the production rates, whether you're falling behind targets, on target, whether running low on stock, all these sorts of things. So I thought that was uh, kind of neat that that popped up, given what we had talked about briefly um, about CNC machines. And you're effectively losing money as a business when they're not running. So you want to have them running all the time, if possible, and as optimally as possible in order for the business to be most productive.
0: Yeah, this this kind of work is uh, is important, and it's it's interesting to see how it's expanded. In a, a previous life, uh, when I was doing IT work, one of the products that I worked on was geared towards inventory management uh, for large distributors of you know various things. In this case, most of them were electrical and plumbing suppliers, and the software would help figure out how much of any product it needed, uh, you know, the, the company needed on hand at any time and was able to proactively order and things like that based on what was needed and also kept track of, you know, what was actually on hand and whether you needed more of it, and things like that. So this is just a, a sort of an extension of that kind of work where it's sort of functioning in the manufacturing world where it's a little bit different than just distribution where you can just magically order stuff. In the case of manufacturing, of course, you can't just magically order stuff. You have to actually make the thing. So it's this is interesting to see the uh, what people are doing because of course this sort of ties in the computer world with the physical world and what's uh, what's happening on a on a machining center. So uh, this is a interesting piece of uh, kit. I didn't realize that this was being developed here in the capital.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and similar to the the auto crib we mentioned for inventory control at Lee Valley and, and the way that that helped keep things uh, organized and and flowing and, and boosted uptime and production. Uh, the Raven Sense, which is the the product that Raven creates, that pairs with these CNC machines, boasts fifteen percent increases in uptime for companies. And that may not sound like much, but if you're making a hundred widgets an hour, that's fifteen extra widgets every hour. That, and that, that adds up. Quickly, that adds yeah. overtime. Mm-hmm. So, what on earth was everybody sending you that you felt compelled to? Ask everyone to stop sending it to you on Twitter.
0: Uh, you know, there's a few people out there who who send me interesting things on a regular basis. You you do, and and Rich does, and uh, and so I'm I'm always getting good links to things from uh, from the two of you. But for whatever reason, this week, everybody that I know, people who never send me things, decided to to send me this particular link, and it's it's odd because this is for a, a pen that Richard Mill. Uh, created uh, the RMS Five pen that they created, and uh, it was released sometime in 2016. So this is a, this is the reason why I was a little bit confused and, and frustrated today be, or this week because I saw this wa- or this pen this pen watch. It's got a watch component in it that that allows the um, the the pen mechanism to retract and extend. It, you know this thing is two years old. Of course, I saw it when it came out because everybody in the pen world was talking about it at the time. And for whatever reason, it hit the zeitgeist this week, and everybody who knows that I make pens and that I'm starting to get into watches decided that this was the thing to show me. And of course, it it's interesting when when it comes up once or twice, but when people who never send you links ever all of a sudden are sending you this, and and it's seven or eight people who are sending it to you, you're like, oh, yes, thank you, I've seen this. Anyways, so it was. Uh, it's an interesting pen. It's uh, a little bit beyond most people's price range, I think. That's fair to say.
1: I'd say so. A six-figure pen is, is yeah. in the, the realm of the uh, preposterous.
0: Yeah. Uh, even even for someone like myself who has five-figure pens, that's uh, that's a little bit crazy. So anyways, we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, to this pen so you can see it in action. It It is a fascinating mechanism. I would love to get my hands on one and tear it apart and see what he's doing. Uh, but at uh, at $105,000, I'm not going to be buying one of these pens anytime soon. And if I do, I am not going to be tearing it apart.
1: So will we be expecting a similar mechanism from you at some point in the future?
0: I can confidently say that I will never be making a mechanism like this for a pen. The The $105,000 price tag, I understand exactly why they've done that the amount of time and effort that must have gone into prototyping and designing this, it must have been astronomical. The only way to make your money back on this would be to charge ridiculous sums of money for it, because otherwise it's you could never make your money back on it. So, uh, yeah, I, I I have no intention of ever designing something like this.
1: Now, for $105,000, I am a, a little disappointed that they decided to use a, a little sp- Spring clip within the mechanism there similar to what you'd find holding a, a chronograph pusher in on a, a seiko as opposed to something a little more classy and, and robust
0: there are a few things in there i would have made different design decisions on uh things like materials um you know the it's it's an interesting mechanism but it certainly doesn't have the f- look of a premium a premium pen
1: yeah, I was was genuinely curious what you had been referring to there on Twitter, because you were, you were pretty ambiguous, and I was, I was just like, what am I out of the loop on uh, yeah. It turns out it was, it was something that had crossed my radar two years uh, yeah. ago.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I like seeing interesting things, but I like seeing interesting things in a timely manner as well.
1: Well, something interesting in a, a mildly more timely manner. Monochrome recently published a great interview with Gary Votiline, and Did you manage to have a chance to read through that?
0: I, I've taken a glance through it. I, I saw you tweet about it the other day and I haven't had a chance to actually read through the article, but uh taking a quick look, there's some uh, of course there's some great photos. I always love reading about uh Kari and what he's doing and and uh I'm always interested in hearing what he has to say, but uh there are some really great photos in here, including some of uh workbenches, which I always love seeing as well as uh, someone working on a straight line engine engraving one of their dials.
1: Yeah, so what did what did you think of their their straight line engine there?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting engine. I I'm not 100% sure, but I think it is a an early Newweiler engine, so that would have been a Swiss made engine. Most of the new Wilder engines I've seen are are a more modern design than this one, but it has cues and characteristics that are consistent with some of the uh, the new that I've seen. So, I suspect that's what it is. It's a horrible green. I, I think I would have repainted it, but uh, it's it looks like a great engine. Uh, and the new Wilders, if it is that, if that is what it is, it's they're extremely well built.
1: And Do there appear to be any modifications or or upgrades that catch your eye?
0: Yeah, one of the uh, upgrades that they've done, which is, is pretty common, but a lot of us have done this, uh, well, two really. One is the microscope. So you can see Engine Turner is using a microscope to be able to see uh, at high resolution what it is that they're doing, which when you're working on these watch dials, it's extremely important. Uh, sometimes you'll have you know, 10 or 15 cuts per millimeter, and you want to be able to see exactly what it is that you're doing. And you might have to go back and and recut an area, so you need to be able to make sure your cutter is going into exactly where it was. Uh, so that's one of the common upgrades that people are doing. And one of the reasons why the engine turning that we're doing today is uh, is superior to the engine turning that was being done 100 years ago during Fabergé's time. Uh, the other upgrade that's been done here is there's a, a stop on the tool itself Uh, which uses the head of a micrometer. We've talked about using micrometers for measuring, um, and those are set up in sort of a C format where you've got the micrometer head and then you've got an anvil, and you put the part in between the two, and you measure the distance between uh, the micrometer head and the anvil. In this case, they've just taken the micrometer head itself, and this way you can accurately set a stop against the machine so that the tool can only cut so deep. Uh, which is extremely important when you're dealing with these very very fine cuts, and in many cases you're dealing with uh, you know depths of cut that are maybe point one point two millimeters deep, and so it's it's very very easy to to cut too deep, and so these micrometer heads allow you to very accurately adjust to the maximum depth of cut that you can use.
1: I have long admired Kari's work, and it's just always appreciate whenever. Uh... A new interview or tidbit of information comes out because it always sheds a little bit of background on his history, his approach, and um, just what he values and and his mindset when it comes to running a business as an independent watchmaker, which is no easy feat, as he alludes to there in the article. It's a a huge amount of respect for him.
0: Yeah, it's always nice hearing from Kari. Uh, The other person I've been hearing a lot from recently is... um... Peter Speak Marin. There have been a number of interviews with him lately. And as he's, as his uh, project, his Naked, the Naked Watchmaker project has sort of gathered some steam, he's been doing a lot more press about it and doing a bunch of interviews. Uh, Some of them are, there was one, there have been a few podcast ones where the audio has been pretty, pretty marginal. But uh, Peter is another guy who always has interesting things to say about the industry. And, and uh, what people are doing. So, if you ever see interviews with him, uh, they're worthwhile reading.
1: Mm. And from what I've, I've gleaned from the the things that Peter has shared, he seems to have, have suffered a little bit from the the sort of pitfalls that that Kari warns against in in this particular interview. Now, another interesting uh, independent watchmaker. Uh, who recently took home a prize at the, the GPHG, is, is Rexep, Rexepi, And uh, I worked my way through an article that was originally published in Albanian recently. And that uh, was quite a, a piece to try and, and work through and, and understand, <laughs> I suppose would be the, the correct way to frame it. Yeah. Um, but I, I found that to be uh, very enlightening as well. And uh, just learning more about his background and, and the work and the sacrifice that, that he has poured into making it to where he has. And it can seem like an overnight success, but it really isn't. It's uh, There's a lot of drudgery and, and ups and downs that, that come with being able to create these really works of art. And I know we both had nothing but high praise for the chronometre contemporain that he debuted at SIHH earlier Mm -hmm. this year and that recently took home the men's watch prize at the GPHG which is essentially the the academy awards of watchmaking
0: yeah that was one of the the watches that I was really impressed with this year I love the design I love the style of what they're doing on the outside and then you start looking at the movement itself and the movement is a masterpiece in and of itself so I have a huge amount of respect for what he's doing with um with his watch brand and, and the style that they've created.
1: It is truly one of the best balanced movements, architecturally mm. speaking, that, that I've ever seen. Absolutely. And the finish is incredible as well.
0: I remember seeing photos of one of the early prototypes of his pieces, and the prototype was nicer than most companies are doing on their finished work. It was just incredible. And he was apologizing for the mm-hmm. the poor finish quality on this uh on this movement because it was a prototype and yet it, it far exceeded what most people were doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, there were a few other w-
0: watches in that uh that won awards this uh this year round. I think we some of them we've talked about before that uh that we like. I know the um uh Van Cleef and Arpel, the uh Lady's Planetarium, that was one that we mentioned earlier on in the year. That's uh that's an interesting design. I, I know it's a miniaturized version of the men's one that they did a few years ago. Anytime you add an astronomical complication to a watch, I'm always fascinated with it. I like the the look of it and, and adding to it. Mm-hmm. The other one was the Nomos Tangent Neomatic. Uh, I'm a big fan of this watch. Um, this is the one that has the date feature uh, with the, uh, the little red dots around the outside to tell you which... Uh, which day of the month it is. And uh, this is this is a watch that I really like the design of. I love the Bauhaus-inspired design that Nomos uses, and I love what they've done with this particular date feature. I find a lot of dates, uh, date complications are just not that attractive. Uh, but they've managed to make this one both attractive and user-friendly,
1: which uh, often doesn't happen. I'd argue it could be even more user-friendly, but uh, that's a topic for another time.
0: I suspect it could be, but I, I like what they've done. I think it's, uh, I think yes, it's good. I so many people are doing are trying to do different things with with day date complications, and often they they're doing something different, but it's not legible. And it's you know at the end of the day, this is supposed to be something that's actually usable. And when the uh, the user experience isn't great, it's uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a fan of of some of these uh, complications just for complications' sake if they're if they're not um, not easily
1: legible. Now, one extremely complicated piece I think was worthy of the prize that was bestowed upon it was Grubel Forzi's Sonnery.
0: Mm, yes, absolutely.
1: And just like Rexep's work, uh, impeccably finished as well. And the only other sort of standout one. And this is kind of a curious one for me was the Audacity Prize that was given to Konstantin Chaikin, it, it, or Chaikin, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name correctly. That's his clown piece, or the, or the Joker. And what, what I find somewhat interesting about that is, is something that would not have been mentioned at the show, but just a, a little bit of backstory there, as there is a, a young gentleman named Liyuen Rapiti who does uh, the one hour watch on instagram and all the other social media sites and twitter included constantine happens to follow him and several years ago he drew a a watch that was effectively a happy face but is is more or less the this piece that took home the audacity prize and prior to the, the very first version of this that constantine made uh, he had reached out and and said to uh, Lee that that he quite enjoyed his drawings (laughs) very much. And um, And then all of a sudden it becomes a a reality. A real watch. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. And I know the two of them had had a a chance to to chat a little bit in uh, London uh, this past year. Uh, So I I think that uh, Lee deserves an honorable mention here as well for that prize that Constantine took home.
0: Yeah, I do enjoy the uh the whimsy of this. If you haven't seen it, the uh there've been a few different versions of this watch. I think it was originally created for the One Watch auction a few years ago. And uh I know they did a, f- a very limited run of the Joker watch that they they did and I think they did a um uh there was a Halloween inspired one. So they've done a few versions sort of based on the same idea. But uh I I do like the I do like the design. I I'm a, I find it amusing and I I like uh I like some of the reactions it's gotten, both positive and negative. I think it's it's a lot of fun. The Santa Fe Symposium is held annually in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's the premier collaborative forum for jewelers and professionals in jewelry-related fields. Bench jewelers, manufacturers, lapidarists, metallurgists, casters, educators, and many more take part in this multifaceted event. The symposium was founded as a non-commercial, not-for-profit gathering, for professionals willing to share their research, challenges, solutions, and innovations. By attending, you will come away with practical know-how you can put to use in your own work. Each year, 24 papers are presented across an exemplary range of jewelry-making endeavors. Attendees receive a copy of the proceedings book, as well as a USB drive with the presentations. Attendees form new relationships, strengthen existing bonds, and build their professional networks with colleagues from around the world. The Santa Fe Symposium offers incredible benefits that last throughout the year and into the future, and the benefits grow stronger each year you attend. Longtime listeners of this show will be familiar with some of the fascinating places I've visited over the past year, including tours of Goldsmiths Company, Cooks and Scold, and Birmingham City University. Those visits are all thanks to the relationships I've built from attending the Santa Fe Symposium. The Santa Fe Symposium is one of the few must-attend events of the year for me, and I hope you join me in Albuquerque next year. The list of speakers for the 2019 Symposium are on the site now. I'm looking forward to a number of papers, including Chris Plouffe and Phil Poirier talking about rose engines and ornamental lathes, as well as Callie Shevlin talking about enameling and Frank Cooper talking about recreating a helm from the Staffordshire Horde. Frank gave me a tour of the work he and his colleagues have done on this HELM project, and you don't want to miss this paper. The 2019 Santa Fe Symposium will be held May 19th to the 22nd. Visit SantaFeSymposium.org today for more information on the lineup of speakers and how to attend. Last episode, I highlighted the work of Anne-Marie Carey from Birmingham City University. This episode, I want to introduce you to the work of Anne Cahoon. As part of her day job as an instructor at the North Bennett Street School in Boston, and is exposed to plenty of discussion about the hows and whys of what we do as bench jewelers. It led her to writing two papers on various bench myths and to challenge some of the accepted wisdom that is passed on to each new generation of jeweler. Regardless of if you are an experienced bench jeweler or just getting started, her papers will give you insight into some of the fundamental techniques we rely on, such as sawing, filing, annealing, and soldering. You can find both of Anne's papers and explore hundreds more at SantaFeSymposium.org.
1: I hear you've been having some issues with your lathe. What's been going on there?
0: Yeah, the Cromwell lathe that I've been using, we've, we've spoken about that before. It's an antique lathe. It was built in the late 40s in Britain, and uh, it was sort of the the Rolls-Royce of lathes, if you will. In fact, Rolls-Royce themselves used the lathes uh, on the shop floor to... Uh, manufacture engines and parts for engines. And it, it has an intriguing electrical setup in it. Um, it's using a complex drive mechanism called a Ward-Lanard drive system. Uh, it was invented in the late 1800s and it allows uh, variable speed control without the loss of torque, uh, which is extremely difficult to do before you get into sort of modern electronics and modern electricity nowadays with high-end equipment we tend to use three-phase power to create a setup where you can do speed control easily with single-phase power you can use a particular digital setup that allows you to do speed control but back 100 years ago or when this lathe was made sort of 70 years ago the options for variable speed were not very great, so most lathes at the time used different pulleys to control the speed, and so you would have, you know, let's say five different settings, and then back gears, so you might have ten different speed settings that you could use. This uh, it's an it's a fascinating system, and it is intriguing the way that it works. However, the downside of it is that the wiring in it is unbelievably complicated it's uh it's a a bit of a mess to follow what's going on and what's happening uh there are in fact three different motors inside of the lathe there's uh, an ac motor that's hooked up to the mains and when you power on the machine it spins up and uh, it is directly connected to a dc motor so it's spinning a dc motor and when you spin a dc motor it turns into a generator, and that generator is then supplying DC power to a third motor, uh, a DC motor, which is what's hooked up to the spindle. Anyways, the long and short of it is that the generator is spinning up just fine, or I should say the the mains motor is spinning up just fine and spinning the the generator, uh, but I wasn't getting any power into my drive motor, and I'm not sure if it's a problem somewhere along the chain that is, uh, you know, just meaning that there's, it isn't the correct power getting to the drive motor, or if the drive motor itself is dead, because the drive motor and the generator are both original motors to that lathe. Uh, the mains motor isn't, it's uh, it was replaced when the lathe was shipped over here to Canada. Uh, this particular one started its life here in Canada in the NRC labs here in Ottawa. And they put a, a, a motor that was Set up for our power. And uh, so it's a a regular single phase 220 motor in there. The other motors are original to the lathe and uh, something along the line has died. So I've needed to come up with a solution to repair that. And uh, after spending a couple of hours sort of troubleshooting it to see if I could figure out what's going on, I decided to remove the original drive motor and replace it with a more modern motor. I'm in the process of mounting. A modern two twenty three three-phase motor to it and i'm then hooking it up to a digital variable frequency drive that will allow me to control the speed uh, through a little box that's on my uh, on my lathe uh, so i'm keeping all the original components uh, in case whomever gets it afterwards wants to troubleshoot it and, and get it back into running as it was originally uh, but right now i'm using it as a production lathe and i can't afford to Spend hours trying to troubleshoot this lathe every time something goes wrong with it.
1: So, in the original setup, was it the three phase motor or the AC motor that was the, where the speed was controlled from, or is, are you adding an additional frequency control on top of the, the speed control that would basically control the speed of the, the final DC motor that's turning the spindle?
0: The speed control was being done between it was being done directly on the drive motor. Uh, so the mains motor was always spinning at the same speed. Uh, it was a 3600 RPM motor. So it was always spinning at that speed and therefore driving the generator at that speed. So it was always generating the same amount of power. And then there's a potentiometer that is in line between the generator and the drive motor, uh, which was adjusting the uh, the voltage that was going to to the drive motor and adjusting the uh, the speed through that potentiometer. It's a very, it, it's an ingenious setup and it, it really is remarkable what they were able to do with, um, with very primitive electronics compared to what we have, or electrics, I should say. It's not even electronics. There's certainly nothing electronic in this. It's, uh, you know, it predates all of that. So I think the first Ward-Leonard drive system was used for a world's fair. It was being used to power the motors for the moving sidewalks in the World's Fair to move people around. And so they could adjust the speed of it and uh, not lose power or not lose torque in the motor.
1: So what is the purpose of the VFD then or the variable frequency drive that you've added? In
0: my case, I don't have three-phase power in my shop. Uh, Unfortunately, three-phase power is not very common in North America anymore outside of industrial settings. So in my case if I wanted to get three phase power into the shop it would probably cost me you know a million dollars or something like that.
1: That's a little out of budget.
0: Yeah, unfortunately my budget doesn't quite quite uh, reach out to to having three phase power uh, delivered from the the road um because it's it's around 7 kilometers away is the most is the sort of the closest three phase power to where I am. So I'd have to pay hydro one to drag that three-phase power to my to my shop, and that's just not going to happen. Uh, so in my case, I need to take single-phase power that I'm getting from the wall and convert it into three-phase power for this motor. These digital VFDs are a relatively inexpensive way of converting that single-phase power, generating the other two legs that it needs to be able to control the motor and power it up. And then also has some other advantages. In my case, I've got a little a little remote that's wired into the VFD. So I can mount the the VFD box itself, which isn't small. I don't want to mount that, you know, sort of in front of where I am working and whatnot. And so it has a little remote panel that you can then mount somewhere else and it's just got a cable that goes back down to the main box. And in there I can do things like I can see what speed the you know, what RPM the motor is spinning at. I can adjust it easily. There's uh, little buttons that I can use for adjusting it. Or if I need to reverse the motor, it's it's very simple. I can just reverse it with the press of a button. Uh, So that's quite nice. And because it's a digital setup, I can also program in the ratio between the speed of the motor versus the speed of the spindle. Uh, Because in my case, it isn't one-to-one. Uh, the, the speed of the motor, it maxes out at 3,600 RPM, but the the spindle itself will go up to 5,000. So I can convert that, you know, I can convert that speed and, and put the ratio in. And so when I see the speed on my little controller, it's the actual speed of the spindle versus the speed of the motor. Little things like that make it nice to work with. And it's um, it's sort of modernizing this this machine and making it a little bit more useful and a little bit more reliable for me.
1: So if you had one of your backups to rely on or, or fill the void for you while you work at this, or has this just been your focus for the last little bit, getting this back up and running?
0: I do have a few other lathes. Well, as we've talked about before, I have more than a few other lathes. Uh, unfortunately, this is this is the most convenient one to do work on, let's say, my watch case. So I, my watch case, I haven't been working on very much in the last little while because this lathe has been down. And I... Haven't I have a watchmaking lathe in my watch studio that is smaller? Uh, it's a it's a it's a Derbyshire uh, watchmaking lathe, and it's a great little lathe. But right now, it's really configured for doing small, detailed work. So I have tiny collets that are designed for doing detailed work on, let's say, a staff or uh, or something like that. And one of the things I need to do is make some larger step collets for it that can support my, my watch cases. And that way I can actually turn the watch cases as well on there and have it as a backup. Um, the other lathe that's up and running most of the time is my south bend lathe, but that's a big 16 inch lathe. And um, it's not at all appropriate for doing this kind of small work on it. It doesn't spin fast enough. And, and frankly, I'm not sure that I would want that thing spinning at, at the sort of speed that's necessary for the this detailed work. I think the chuck that's on there now weighs around 45 pounds and, you know, spinning that at 5,000 RPM would be a little bit terrifying. So that lathe doesn't, uh, doesn't do the fine detailed work. I generally use that lathe for making tooling and uh, parts for other machines just because it is so big.
1: I'm sure you can chew up metal pretty quick with that.
0: Yeah, you can do some terrifying things to a piece of metal with that lathe. It's, uh, it just doesn't care. It doesn't stop. If you want to take a half-inch cut in a piece of steel, it will just chug away and keep chewing through it. It's uh, it's a pretty impressive machine.
1: Well, somewhat tangential to this subject. Uh, back in episode 21, when you first admitted your lathe addiction publicly, we touched on the fact that the definition of a kilogram was on the brink of being changed. And by the time that This episode goes live. That will indeed have come to pass, so that the kilogram, as we know it, is no more. In fact, it's more precise.
0: Yeah. On the sixteenth of November, the uh, Le Grand K is being retired as the definition of the kilogram, and it's now being tied to Planck's constant. And so that uh, piece of platinum that's sitting in a vault in Paris is no longer going to be exactly one kilogram. It will be very, very close to a kilogram, but it will no longer be the definition of a kilogram. I'm uh, I'm excited to see this. I I think there's four or five other units that are changing as well because they are in some way or another tied to uh, the definition of, of a kilogram. So there are a few other base SI units that need to change, uh, and most cases very, very slightly. Like there's no real world impact on... Uh, on these changes so uh, yeah there's a bunch of changes happening in the uh, in the metrology world over the next the next couple of days
1: so we won't go into too much detail on those changes here as it's, it's something we've touched on quite a bit in previous episodes already but we will link to a new video from Derek Mueller over at veritasium that uh, walks through the, the changes that are taking place to the kilgram. Now, the whole reason that uh, we first started talking about SI units and the kilogram was because of Simon Winchester's The Perfectionists. Uh, And another aspect of that book that has been plaguing me recently is optics and glass and and lenses. And I have um, recently been tasked with doing some conservation work on um, a historically significant piece. And as a part of that conservation, I am also needing to document all the various steps along the way. And uh, I busted out my my trusty digital SLR and uh, a macro lens that I inherited from my brother-in-law and was been trying uh, quite futilely to get some good images of of the components close up uh, to a level of quality that I would like them to be. I've actually happened to, or found myself in the position that I've fallen back on using my iPhone 10 for a lot of the shots, just because I find I'm I'm getting much cleaner shots using the iPhone. And that's probably due to all of the computational imaging that's going on there in the background and and heavily leveraging the processor. But I'm just curious, uh, what's your setup for taking product shots of your, your pens and whatnot?
0: Uh, there's a few things that I do. So my primary camera is a Nikon D810. That uh, That's what I've been shooting with for the last few years. And I use two different macro lenses for it. One is a 60 millimeter macro lens and the other is a 105mm macro lens. Those have done very well for me over the last couple of years. Uh, one of the key things that I do when I'm taking product photos is that I use a technique called focus stacking. It's a technique that allows me to take multiple photos at different focus points and then combine them so that all of the out-of-focus parts get deleted and only the in-focus parts are kept. And it allows me to photograph large things and keep everything in focus, which would be challenging to do with the setup that I've got otherwise. That's been my primary setup for doing photography. I know... A number of people have been using their iPhones for shooting detailed watch photos. Uh, I know one of the popular setups right now is using the loop system. It's a large uh, jeweler's loop or watchmaker's loop that's been designed for looking at watches in detail and and being able to get a lot of great light through it and and a lot of good uh, a lot of really great images out of it and they've also made a case that allows you to Uh, snap one of these loops onto the back of your iPhone. And I've seen some amazing photos and videos coming out of that.
1: Yeah, I have a small macro lens that I often use with my phone that I've had for years and years. Not quite as fancy as the loop system, but uh, it does the job quite well. Uh, The issue that i've run into with the macro lens that i have is like a, a halo effect because focus stacking is something I've, I've done before and i am familiar with and got workflows in photoshop to be able to do that and affinity photo for the ipad which we've mentioned in the past actually makes it yeah. really simple as well to do focus stacking and like at that price point too it's a, a no-brainer to pick that app up uh, so that's all great but i i'm guessing it's some some issue somewhere in the lens, or maybe something's just not clean. I don't, I don't know what's transpired, but I get like almost a a hazy blue halo over some of the the shinier parts.
0: Yeah, I think what you're probably getting is chromatic aberration, and this is a problem with lower quality lenses in particular, where you end up with a bit of a fringe in different colors depending on how it's. Sort of presents itself. I know certainly lower quality lenses for digital SLRs, you'll see that a lot in low quality cameras and um, cheap cell phones. Uh, you'll see the, the uh, chromatic aberration. Sometimes it's sort of a purplish pink hue that you get around things. Sometimes it's blue, green. Uh, so I suspect you may be getting some chromatic aberration and that's that's coming from the lens and probably the low quality of it. You may not have noticed it before now just because the camera's in these iPhones have gotten so good that they, you may have you know sort of exceeded the the uh, optical limits of the the lens that you've got.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I I figure the the issue at play is because this is it's a lens. that's probably thirty five forty years old. Right. Yes, yeah, so I've thought about using my newer fifty millimeter lens with a tube in between it and, and the camera body to turn it into a, a macro lens. Uh, But I I then lose out on any sort of auto-focusing and and whatnot. So a little more manual work on my end, but it would be necessary anyway to do the focus stacking. Uh, But uh, one little trick too that helps there is is something that's simply called the lens twist trick. So opening the aperture wide up and then twisting away from the camera body so that the aperture is left wide open. And that's something you can do when, say, taking time-lapse of photos so it prevents any sort of flickering that could occur there uh, but then removing it from the the camera body and and tossing some tubes in the middle so i may try that approach but i'm actually pretty satisfied with what i've uh, been able to pull off with the the iphone and uh, the client that i'm doing this for is actually more than impressed with uh, what i've been able to do with the iphone i i ideally uh would like to have the uh, the slightly higher resolution that I can pull from the SLR, uh, but that the iPhone is is doing the trick and it is possible to shoot raw on the iPhone now too using third-party apps. So mm-hmm, Absolutely. Uh, certainly, um, it, it's impressive what these little cameras can pull off. Now, obviously not as great as uh, true high-grade professional gear and, and what that might be able to do, but to think that this is a, a complete camera and lens multi lens system that is mere millimeters thick is mind-boggling yeah and, and as we've
0: mentioned before I've stopped carrying my DSLR a lot of times unless I I know that I want to shoot some specific photos that uh you know on on a holiday or something like that I've often you know I'm often leaving my DSLR at home because the iPhone has just gotten so good now the other option that I've got available to me here if the macro lens, can't handle the magnification that I need Uh, my microscope also has an option to mount a camera onto it it's a trinocular microscope and the third tube allows me to mount a I think it's a c-mount lens Uh, so there's an adapter out there that I can mount my my Nikon camera onto it and the the microscope effectively becomes the the camera lens for my my camera uh, so that allows me to shoot still and video through that, and I can get anywhere. In my case, I can get anywhere from seven to forty-five x magnification out of it, uh, just by adding my camera to the top of my microscope.
1: And you've recently relaunched your YouTube channel.
0: Well, I'm starting to. It's. Uh, I'm. I'm starting to try and get some some content, some new content up there. There's there's a single video up there that's been there for three years now. I guess my mechanical apprentice video. And I'm nearly finished editing the uh, video that I, uh, I'm i making from my Santa Fe Symposium talk earlier in the year. I recorded the audio while I was giving the talk, and I'm inserting the slides as well as the video from the talk into a video. Uh, it's going to be more, probably 45 or 50 minutes long, but uh, for those who want to go back and see my, my Santa Fe talk, that hopefully will be up in the next week or so and uh, invisible, but yeah the on top of that i'm also starting to to work towards recording and filming the the things that i do in the shop uh, so all of the things that i do not just uh, not just watch related things but also some of the machining that i do and the jewelry work that i do so that's that's going to be a focus of uh, the next few months in particular trying to get some new videos put up and and recorded for that
1: so you picked up any new gear to be filming all this footage this past year
0: I've been struggling a little bit because I've been using my D810 to shoot video with and Nikon is never given a lot of a lot of control over what's going on on the the video side Their Their video setup is not very good. I I know there was a huge revolution thanks to the Canon 5D Mark II a few years ago, uh, probably more than a few years ago at this point. And it was sort of the first digital SLR that had decent video Capabilities in it, and unfortunately, while Nikon has sort of followed suit to some degree, and you can record video on it, it's not an ideal setup for it. So, I've been trying to decide if I wanted to uh, to continue pursuing using a digital SLR for it or not. Uh, one of the other limits of my D810 is that it records in 1080p, and I wanted to start filming everything in 4K so that I can uh, sort of start from a, a higher quality video than than what's uh than what most people are doing uh so in my case i'm now starting to look at the brand new black magic pocket cinema camera 4k I, I that name is horrible companies you need to start thinking of better
1: but the camera is incredible
0: uh, the camera is incredible but the name is horrible your marketing departments really need to come up with better better names for these things the the black magic camera is a remarkable camera it's relatively inexpensive as these things go. In fact, I I had looked at getting a D850 from Nikon because it does 4K video and, the, um, and this Blackmagic 4K pocket camera. It's less than half the price of buying a new D850 and frankly is significantly better at filming. That's all that it's geared for. It's designed specifically for that. The ergonomics are designed for it. Uh, all the features are designed for it. So that's uh, that's what I'm currently in the process of trying to acquire and and uh, create a new setup in my shop so that I can easily record 4K footage of what I'm doing and then start putting that together into hopefully interesting videos that people will enjoy.
1: Yeah, compared to the 810, it is remarkable as well that uh, the iPhones and the iPads now can record in 4K. And I shouldn't even say now. They've been able to record... 4k video for a number of years which is incredibly impressive once again for such a, a small sensor and, and lens system
0: and with the new iPhone 10s that's been released uh, back in September so a few months ago now the 4k filming in it is impressive if you're shooting in 24 frames per second or 30 frames per second uh, what can what Apple does is they actually film at 60 frames a second. And every second frame is shot at either higher or lower exposure. And they can then create a high dynamic range video out of it, uh, which is impressive, the fact that they're able to do this on the fly. Uh, they've got enough computing power to be able to basically film twice as many frames as you actually need and then stick them together in a way that you get a better, better dynamic range. Uh, I've been shooting a couple of videos with uh with the new camera, the new uh the new phone and a couple of photos as well, but the videos in particular, uh the quality of of video that you're getting out of it, and particularly in situations where you've got these high dynamic range setups where you've got maybe something very bright behind uh behind your subject. It's amazing the the quality of video that you're getting out of these these iPhones now. So the, the iPhone is going to be probably the backup camera to the Blackmagic camera in terms of getting some shots because there are times where just having a, a small portable camera like that is actually convenient and, and can get better shots than what the uh, the larger camera can do.
1: I'm just handy for picking up a little bit of B-roll here and there. Absolutely. Now, Do you have a mount for your phone to set it up on a tripod?
0: Uh, I do have a mount. I have uh, a Glyph mount this was a kickstarter project that came out a few years ago and they've released a couple of different versions of it i have the most recent one that i use with my phone and it's great it's uh, got a quarter 20 threaded hole on it so that it's easy to mount on various things so i can put it on a tripod or a a monopod or something like that Uh, i also use the magic arms from manfrotto which is a great articulated arm that's very easy to lock in place Uh, so i can use that for putting my cameras exactly where i need uh, and then I've also used the uh, gimbal from DJI, uh, the Osmo Mobile, uh, for mounting my camera in, or I should say for mounting my phone in. And that allows me to get some some very good footage while I'm moving without it bumping around and, and looking really awkward. So yeah, there's a few options out there for mounting the phone and getting, it, getting a good stable shot out of it and uh, turning it into a very professional looking uh, image. So it's, a, it's certainly a lot of flexibility with
1: it. Do you use Osmo's app then when you use the gimbal or do you film in just the regular Apple camera or a different app altogether? I have
0: been using the DJI app, although I'm not particularly happy with it. I'm thinking about using Filmic Pro for the control of it because Filmic Pro has a lot of advanced options that the native app doesn't have and the... um. Uh, certainly the d j i one doesn't have, but the problem is the only app at this point I believe that's doing the h d r video through the multiple frame exposure thing is uh is the actual native apple uh video app so uh that that sort of keeps me going back to that app just because it's right now it's computationally it's the the most advanced of the um, apps that's available to me on the phone
1: mm-hmm. But I guess you, you miss out on the the focus point type features from the, the native or native I guess is the wrong word from DJI's app, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. But I, I suppose you're not in any circumstances where you're relying on that.
0: No, the those features are pretty neat and they they're certainly useful. It has a, a subject tracking feature, so you can click on a or su- surround an object, like let's say somebody's head, and the gimbal will automatically track that person so that they always stay in frame. And when, when that's set up properly, it's amazing how well it works. Mm-hmm. But I'm not in a situation really where I'm using that kind of feature. So I, that, that's less of a concern for me.
1: I found it a, a little clunky trying to use the, the gimbal with just the, the regular camera app, but it certainly makes the video far more stable. But it is a little trickier for tracking along with a, a subject if you're doing something particularly active.
0: Yeah, I was shooting some video when I was in Japan last year. Uh, I was walking through a park in Kyoto and I didn't have a gimbal at the time and I'd been waffling back and forth whether I wanted to buy one and I should have bought one before I went there because it's the quality of video that you get with a gimbal versus just sort of handheld is dramatically different, so... That's. Uh, I'm actually considering getting a gimbal that can you that I'll be able to use my Blackmagic camera on as well, so that when I am out and I'm shooting, I'll be able to get better quality footage than than what I'll be able to get just doing a handheld. So we'll see. I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to go that route or not, but it's uh, it certainly makes a big difference if you can use a gimbal.
1: Man, a few more years, maybe you'll have half a dozen drones in your workshop following you around too.
0: I'm not sure that I could deal with the noise that they put out. I, I, <laughs> I find drones fascinating, but the the noise that comes out of them is ridiculous.
1: So you've picked up the XS. Have, have you picked up uh, the Series Four Apple Watch as well? Or are you you holding off on that one?
0: No, I haven't picked. The, I haven't picked that up yet. I think I am going. I'm going to get one. Uh, I think I am actually going to get one of the aluminum ones. I'm. I was worried before about destroying the watch in the shop, and I think I've, I've just got to get over it because if I get this, if I get the aluminum one, the sport one. I can basically destroy that thing once a year and replace it every year and still spend less money than what I was going to on the uh the uh, stainless steel version.
1: And the the price is appreciably more here in Canada than it is down state set. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So
0: yeah, so I think I'm going to get the uh, get the Series 4, get the um the LTE in it and uh that'll also help me sort of unplug from my phone a little bit.
1: And what do you think of the new iPads? The
0: new iPads are impressive, and I am looking forward to getting one. Yes, I will be definitely getting one. The I like what they've done with the redesign. I love the fact that the larger one, the 12.9-inch iPad Pro, they've shrunk the physical size of the device by a fair bit, and I think I'm probably going to go back to a 12.9-inch iPad Pro. I did have one years ago, and I'm, I found it a bit too big and a bit too clumsy, but this new one is basically the size of an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Uh, so it's, it's become a, a more reasonable size with the same size screen. So I, I think I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm a little disappointed that the old pencil isn't compatible with the new one. Uh, however, I am very impressed with what they've done with the new pencil in terms of the, uh, the redesign. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm going to get a new pencil because I, I do use mine enough that I'm, uh, that I'll, I'll, uh, I'll need that. But, yeah, the the new iPad Pros, I, I love the design, especially the the exterior design. They've gone back to a sort of a square design, uh, reminiscent of the iPhone 4 and the iPhone 5 series of uh, of phones. And uh, I hope that this is foreshadowing what they're going to do with the the iPhone in the near future because I I love the square shape. I love the uh, the uh, the design that they've they've moved towards with these.
1: Yeah, my my hands-on time with it, actually found it a little. A little bit too square. I would have appreciated a small taper, but then that throws off the charging of the, the number two pencil, which I agree with you is, is leaps and bounds better than their original Apple pencil. Uh, so really impressed with the the changes there. Uh, but I I thought I would want to get uh, the new iPad, but I am I'm going to hold off after having a, a bit of hands-on time with it. Uh, it's not for me just yet. And and we are actually, uh, we no longer have a, a 12.9 in the house. We no longer have a pencil in the house. Oh, really? Because uh, I'm i just not using it enough to, to justify it. So um, the Air 2, oddly enough, is the, the iPad I use the most uh, around the house and tends to be the, the use cases that, uh, well, suits the use cases that I have for it best. Now, there is a portion of me that really wants to be uh, someone who who makes solid use of the the pencil and and what the iPad Pro has to offer, Uh, but uh, in reality and in practice, uh, it's just not quite there for me yet. Now, perhaps that will change with the imminent release of uh, real Photoshop on the iPad uh, coming up in in 2019. Uh, But... uh, till that time and until I've had a chance to to give that a whirl, I'm not gonna bite the bullet just yet.
0: Uh, yeah, I have to say the biggest limitation of these devices at this point is not the hardware. The hardware is unbelievable. And as if you watch the keynote, you know, they talk about how much faster the iPad Pro is now than I think they said like ninety percent of the, the mobile uh, computers that are out there on the market now including their own. Uh, I mean, when you look at the speed tests on these new iPad Pros, they outperform most of the notebook computers that are out there on the market now. So at this point, it's no longer a limitation of the hardware. And frankly, the the screens on them are gorgeous. Uh, You know, So that that hasn't been a problem.
1: Minus some fingerprint issues.
0: Yeah, the the fingerprints get a little bit annoying, but you can deal with that. For me, my biggest complaint about these devices is the lack of some applications you know obviously photoshop uh, adobe has just has announced that they're bringing out a full version of photoshop for it and from all accounts people who've been using the beta it is extremely impressive on these devices so if you're a heavy photoshop user that's something to look forward to i'm not a big photoshop user i tend to use uh, affinity photo instead uh, both on my mac and on my ipad although these days it's almost exclusively on my ipad and i'm a big fan of that it's also significantly less expensive than photoshop and has things like the focus stacking option that i use uh so that, mm-hmm. that tends to be my go to for that but uh i'm incredibly frustrated with apple and the fact that their pro apps aren't available for the ipad uh, you know their for their video editing app uh final cut pro and their audio editing app logic pro i i use both of those on a regular basis for editing video for the YouTube channel, also for editing this podcast, I use Logic for doing that, and it's frustrating to me that they're not available on the iPad because there's no good reason why the iPad could not handle the same kind of work that my 15-inch MacBook Pro is doing. Uh, you know, there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to edit 4K video on on my iPad or edit this podcast on my iPad. And right now, the the fact that I have to bring my MacBook Pro along with me. You know, if I go overseas or whatever for three weeks, uh, I need to be able to edit the the episode that we've recorded, and the fact that I have to bring my MacBook Pro along to do that is incredibly frustrating.
1: So I don't know if you saw the MKBHD video recently with the the magnetic uh, film yeah. that he ran over the back of the iPad. Yeah. Did, uh, did you also notice that the way that he had the the iPad he was handling back and forth position was over the ledge? And that that was just simply so he could pick it up because it's almost impossible to pick. A naked iPad off a table with one hand.
0: Yeah, that is frustrating. The uh, when you have the the square square um, sides on on a device that large, I can palm the ten point five inch one uh, and and pick it up one handed just by palming it. But uh, the twelve point nine, I can't do that. So uh, even with the the reduced size that it has now, uh, so that that'll be a little bit frustrating. But um, I'm a fan of the the new design. Uh, one of the things that I like about it is I find the curved edges uh, are too slippery and that's less of an issue on an iPad. Um, but I find, especially on the phone, one of the reasons why I use a case nowadays is with those rounded sides, you can't sort of lock the phone into your hand. You can't sort of take the, the sharp corner and uh, and sort of rest it up against your hand and and assume that it's going to stay there. I just find it too slippery, so that's why I'm hoping that that uh, that design language comes back to the phone, and we start seeing a, a square shape and a, a sort of a more square design.
1: Yeah, that little bit of grip that an edge like that gives you is one of the other nice features of the profile on the the Microsoft Surface tablets. Uh, it's I would I would appreciate just a very slight chamfer or or tilt on the the edge. Doesn't have to be extreme, uh, but that the flat sides just make it a little a little hard to handle.
0: I am interested in seeing what uh, other people do with keyboards and things like that. I I have been missing my keyboard. I had a a keyboard for one of my older iPads, and I used it a lot. And I I hadn't found one for this ten point five inch iPad that I was happy with. And uh, I'm not particularly impressed with the the Apple case that has the keyboard built into it. I don't particularly like that style of keyboard, um, but I know there's a few companies out there. Um, Bridge, I think, is one of them that has made some interesting keyboards over the last couple of years. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with their keyboard for this uh, new generation of iPad uh, because when I am on the road, it, it is kind of nice to be able to have a keyboard on there that I can type on and I can do some work. Uh, that, that certainly makes things a little bit easier. Uh, so... Yeah, between adding a keyboard to it, the new pencil, and hopefully, hopefully soon, Pro apps from Apple, that would be really nice. Uh, and, and I hope we don't have to wait until WWDC to to see something like that come out or iOS 13. Uh, I hope that Apple decides to release it sooner than that because I will gladly pay to have both of those on my iPad if uh, uh, you know if it means that I can avoid bringing my my macbook with me on when i'm on holiday
1: well hopefully 2019 is the year of pro apps for the ipad
0: it'd be nice to see at this point the um uh, you know the hardware certainly there
1: now i am impressed that you can palm a 10.5 inch <laughs> iPad. i'm sitting here with a 9.7 and i cannot palm it for the yeah life. but
0: that 9.7 has a larger bezel on it than my 10.5
1: does it yeah, really it does. It, i'm pretty it, by how much not by much
0: Got big hands, John. I, I've told you this before. I've got large hands.
1: You know what they say about guys with big hands. <laughs> we need big pens, exactly, and big mittens. Big, big mittens. It is cold out there. Oh,
0: John, don't get me started about that. This is the time of year when I'm always trying to figure out how to live somewhere warmer. So if you're uh, if you're interested in being a, a patron of a, a jeweler slash watchmaker slash machinist, and uh, you're interested in putting me up in a warm spot in the world. Uh, You're welcome to get in touch. Info at silverhandstudios.com. And uh, I would happily talk to you about relocating to somewhere warm where I can do my work and not freeze.
1: Well, I'm sure the the Santa Fe Symposium in May will be a a welcome change in weather for you. And uh, our thanks again to the Santa Fe Symposium for sponsoring this episode.
0: Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at OffHours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore hand.